0: SECTION 25 OF OPEN THE DOOR This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley Open the Door by Catherine Carswell Book 3, Chapter 1, Part 4 4 but when she saw the face with which her lover was hurrying towards her, her heart dropped like a shot bird. "'I'm so sorry, my dear, so frightfully sorry,' he began to speak at once and with rapidity, almost before they had met. "'I can't tell you how sorry I am, how disappointed, but our evening has fallen through. What's her name? Marietta, my new daughter-in-law, has turned up. It was at the last moment and quite unexpected.' How I got here at all I hardly know, but I remembered the telephone was no use today as you were going out early, and I hated to fail you altogether. Side by side they turned, instinctively shunning the bustle of Piccadilly, and they had walked some way up Dover Street before Joanna could speak in reply. All her being, so exultantly exposed till a moment ago, now laboured under the reverse it had suffered. It would take her a little while to recover. You know, my dearest heart, pleaded Lewis anxiously, his eyes on her unhappy face. If you are to be so upset when this happens, we shall have to make an end. You must know it can't be helped at times. Come, cheer up. I can tell you it is as bad for me as for you. Worse, perhaps. I was living all day to day for the evening. That dear little room of yours, you know I was. You know there isn't a place on earth where I'm half so happy, so peaceful. You do know, he urged, touching her arm appealingly as she remained silent. Don't you say you do? Yes. Well then? But while they drank tea in a shop, Lewis having decided that he might risk just ten minutes longer with her, he fell to talking quite gaily of his son's wife. She's a nice, charming girl, he declared. I must say it, with the most splendid yellow hair you ever saw in your life and he kissed the tips of his fingers to the air in worship of Marietta's tresses. "'Rather a fine person in herself, too, I shouldn't be surprised,' he added more soberly. And he went on to hope that Marietta would sit for him, but he suspected she was already in the way to make him a grandfather. "'Me? A grandfather, Joanna? Think of it! I'll have to reform my character, shan't I?' Yet how preposterous that anyone should regard you as a siren who is leading my grey hairs to perdition. Perhaps Lewis, however, was not so sure after all. Anyhow, within two minutes he was bewailing that he and Joanna were lovers. I so often long, he confessed, to have you up to the house and show you off to my friends. There's tonight. I know you would like Marietta and she you.' We could have all sorts of pleasant times, and I'd be so proud of you. But things as they are spoil all that. Do you remember my bringing old Perrin out to Chapel Court to see you, and how horribly self-conscious we all were? Joanna assented, but without speaking. Somehow, though Perrin had been as friendly and courteous as possible, she could not bear to be reminded of his visit. "'You are too good for this kind of thing, Joanna. "'That's the trouble,' said Lewis, gloomy and worried, "'and he looked at his watch. "'What a strange echo was there "'of something Bob had said long, long ago. "'Joanna, lifting eyes full of pain to his face, "'mutely opened her lips once, twice before the words came. "'Is any woman too good to be loved?' she asked at last. "'He gave her a startled glance,' And his mouth formed a word of sincere response. But he checked himself and veered off impatiently. What's the use of talking? he protested. With you and me it had to be like this, and that's all about it. Besides, hasn't it been worth it? If it were all to end today, hasn't it been worth it again and again? For me it has. I shall never go back on that. But for you? For me too, answered Joanna looking at him sadly and even though her lips shook she repeated the affirmation steadily like a knell for me too i'll tell you what said he leaning forwards towards her with energy i'll tell you what joanna all the rest of life is either a labour or a bore that's what it comes to and it may be as well to keep love quite separate better face facts a man said to me once and never mix up love and marriage. And there is some truth in it, don't you think so? Come, he continued, rallying her affectionately. Dear pretty one, you mustn't look so sorrowful. Tell me, I have only two minutes more. Tell me where you were calling this afternoon. Was it on friends of your sister? Garden suburb people with sandals and gibbers? Doing violence to herself, Joanna gave Lewis quite a lively account of the visit to Bryanston Square. He laughed at her description of camels, great and little, and showed interest when she mentioned the name of Lady Pilkington as one of Irene's guests. Pilkington? Why, that must be the explorer man's wife, he interrupted. Perrin was always talking of bringing them round. He pointed them out one night in the theatre. Is she good-looking? She made no impression whatever on me but what a fine, ugly brute the man is. I'd be glad of a chance to paint that queer, almost devilish, triangular mug of his. Lewis pondered for a moment. I'll tell you a secret, my girl, he continued warmly. And you alone, mind. Of late, I've got a fresh glimpse of things. If only I could somehow beat out to it, I believe I should see my new way clear. For Lewis to speak in this way of his work was rare and when he went on with diffident excitement to describe to her the beginnings of a new picture, Joanna was far more stirred than by words of love. Was this at last the budding between them that she had longed for? If so, Lewis was hers, she his, even though the solid world should sunder them, she need have no fear. She was unhappy again, however, when the conversation returned to Irene, and with a heat astonishing to herself— She was presently championing the people of the garden suburb by comparison with the Irenes and the Pilkingtons. The discussion, indeed, was rapidly assuming the features of a familiar quarrel between them. I know what you mean, said Joanna antagonistically, when Lewis, with hardening eyes, had restated his inveterate preference for the world of fashion. I know Georgie's friends are rather awful, but they really are interested in ideas, and the Irenes aren't. Isn't that a great thing? Lewis looked elaborately bored. It may be, he conceded in fretful hostility, though I think it's open to question whether these dire-looking people who take themselves so seriously are really the ones to help things on. Whether or no, I can't help my own liking for more comfortable society, can I? To this Joanna agreed, but unhappily for there had been that in his voice which proclaimed a discord in himself, and as many a time before, she had the vision of him as a man torn in twain. But now, their ten minutes being long exceeded, he must go his way, and she hers. Pay no attention to my moods, he begged at parting. Remember that, anyhow, so far as you are concerned, they mean nothing. Things are difficult for me, that's all. For you too, my dear don't I know? You need never tell me. I know everything. I appreciate everything more than you can ever guess. It is never out of my mind what you do for me, what you are to me. So, Joanna, bear up if you can. You are the good thing in my life. Don't leave go of me. Without you, I should be in the mire. Next moment, he was gone in his taxicab, leaving her alone. Five. She walked back to Chapel Court, and all the way she was trying to draw the sustenance she terribly needed from her lover's parting words and demeanour. Her efforts met with some success, especially when she dwelt upon the last look he had given her, a look of solicitude that was at once sincere and helpless. But she no longer flitted through the streets like a flame, she went weighed down. Unconscious of all about her, quenched, closed in upon herself, slow moving as a deep sea diver. Since her coming to London, there had been only one incident to match with this. It had happened months ago, and had since been made light of in memory, but under present stress, it came back to her with vengeful clearness. Rather early one morning, she had been alone in town, and was crossing a part of Oxford Street almost clear of traffic at that moment, when an open taxicab drove quickly past. In it was Lewis, with another man towards whom his face was turned in laughing expostulation. Though Joanna was already near the middle of the roadway, he did not see her, and next moment he was gone. It was nothing, of course. Joanna knew that as well as anyone could. She was well aware that Lewis must inevitably drive about with friends in taxicabs, just as he walked, talked, and ate with men and women she never saw, men and women who, taken together, were as nothing in his life compared with herself. She fully realized also that it was by mere accident she had now, for the first time, seen him entirely out of contact with herself. Tomorrow he would be sure to tell her all about his companion, his destination at that early hour. Even the subject of his expostulation, and they would laugh together over the spasm of jealous emotion. But it was the first time, and there Joanna had stood, in the middle of the roadway, quite bereft, and staring after the taxicab as if in its swift passage it had snatched her very soul from her. Another driver had to shout at her in fury, he had only just saved himself from knocking her over. Yes, In the face of all reason, it had been a bitter experience. The sense her lover had conveyed of inhabiting a world from which she was excluded. His animation, his complete unconsciousness of her presence, the impossibility of thrusting her presence upon him by a gesture. These had been bitterness. And in these he had played but an involuntary part. In this new failure, he was both conscious and acquiescent. With deathly apprehension, Joanna beheld a future full of similar failures. Involuntary failure, alternating with failure that was voluntary. It was not to be born. But why was it not to be born? As the minutes passed, the girl's reasoned endurance and her stubborn will reasserted themselves, not for the first time. It was folly to say it could not be born, when she had already borne it more or less knowingly for a space of years. Did the mere seeing, with one's eyes, of something already known, make unbearable what was bearable before? Where was her courage? Had she not prepared herself for this many, many a time? Had Lewis not warned her fairly? Had she not accepted the circumstances in which such trials of love were to be looked for? Had she not even desired such circumstances? Yet here she was, shaken by the first trial. So, yet again, did Joanna gather up all the deathly courage that was hers and recover a deathly buoyancy. Yet again, with her lover's appeal ringing afresh in her ears, did she draw herself up to her full stature of proud humility. Let the next testing come, when and how it might, she would be unshaken. She would show Lewis a composed and cheerful countenance Had he not so far humbled himself as to ask a favour of her? So long as he could do that, so long as she was his angel, his friend and his love, was there anything she could not endure? As she crossed the road to Chapel Court, she braced herself to look calmly upon her joyous decoration of the little studio. She would take down the gay, unlighted lanterns and put them away for a happier occasion, without repining would divide among the children the fruits and dainties she had provided for a love-feast, and having herself eaten a sober meal, she would work until bedtime. She would not even allow herself the distraction of a book. With a strong, Puritan revulsion of disfavour, did she now look back upon the inebriation of her afternoon. Sobriety showed as the condition to be striven for. A godly, righteous, and sober life. How wonderful! that an expression until now quite devoid of personal significance should spring up suddenly in living, most desirable beauty. Henceforward, she was determined to withstand that inherited tendency of hers to barren ecstasies. Greatly restored by this discovery, Joanna immediately quickened her pace. It was as if no time must be lost in putting it into practice— and at the same moment that her feet stepped into a livelier measure, came a thought, which caused a broad, amused smile to overspread her features. How amazingly ignorant, thought she, were those persons that would condemn her relations with Lewis on grounds of laxity or self-indulgence. What other situation between man and woman could demand so constant a self-discipline, such sacrifice, such effort— such a putting aside of all slackness and sloth. Assuredly, the reality was very different from anything she herself, standing by the little garden door of La Portiuncola, had imagined. Yet she was glad it was different, glad to have it so, glad of love's hardness. No longer smiling, but grave and resolute, she was about to pass under the archway when Edwin Moon came out of the shop and made to speak to her. In a frock coat and top hat, he seemed smaller and more bent than usual. He was carrying his black attaché case. "'A lovely evening, isn't it?' he asked, looking submissively at the heavens. He had stopped, so Joanna was compelled to stop also. Clearly there was something further in his mind to say to her. A little embarrassed, but patient with him by experience, Joanna waited. From the first, she had felt a liking for the little, vague man, with his shabby gait and his oddly dispassionate face. And lately, her liking had developed into a kind of championship. She could not get out of her mind the sound of Trissy Moon's voice as she had heard it, overheard it, rather, late one night in the summer. It had wakened her, that voice of Trissy's floating in at the widely opened window of her bedroom, to the accompaniment of a flowing tap in the yard below, where husband and wife were together engaged upon a midnight cleansing of the kitchen. The longer I live with you, the more you drive me mad. This was the only complete phrase which had emerged clearly from the low, stinging tirade, pertinacious as the water that beat steadily upon the stones of the yard. Twice only could the involuntary listener detect the man's meek murmur in protest or self-defence. But the pushing, contumelious voice of the woman had gone on till it was checked by its own hoarseness. Then only it had faltered. Then only, after reviving time and again, but ever with lessening strength, had it fallen into a derisive, implacable silence. Since that night, Joanna had sided in secret with the husband, and this, though it was the wife who went constantly out of her way to be helpful especially in the matter of arranging Joanna's rooms, Trissy Moon had spared no pains. Joanna, indeed, had never known anyone to compare with her in all that concerned a house. Her taste was wonderfully sure, it did not surprise her lodger, to learn one day by chance that she had been a promising art student before her marriage, and her practical knowledge never failed. But gratitude and admiration notwithstanding, Joanna had acquired the habit of avoiding her presence when she could. It was not that she disliked Trissy; She had to admit a real, even a painful liking for her. But it had come as a relief when a month ago, Trissy, declaring herself sick to death of household drudgery and giving as an excuse that she must find extra money for Roddy's massage, had rushed into the management of a local laundry which was changing hands. Since then... Even the growing discomfort of the Moon household, and the neglect of its mistress and the efforts of spasmodic charwomen, seemed preferable to Trissy's strained smile and unceasing stream of talk. But Mr. Moon was still speaking with diffident persistence, and as his manner was, circuitously approaching his point, I always say, he told Joanna mildly, that the pet days of the year come in November and in March, the very late autumn, the very early spring. There's something in the air, then. Jocund. Fecund, which is it? So I find, at least. But I rarely get anyone to agree with me. People say they feel ill in March and melancholy in November. I remember when we lived in Hampshire. We used to ride in the forest in November. There was nothing melancholy about that. I had a strawberry mare equally good to ride or drive. She was called Bathsheba, after one of Hardy's heroines. That, of course, is the Hardy country. For a time, he was one of my... Edwin Moon's voice trailed off, and his pale blue ambiguous gaze travelled into space. His companion was eager in expressing her entire agreement with regard to the pet days of the year. But this being decided between them, she was still waiting for what he really wanted to say. Is it an embalming this evening? "'Seeking for some chat to fill in the silence, "'Joanna pointed to the attaché case "'in which she knew he carried his instruments. "'She had now known for some time "'in which capacities her landlord was engaged "'by the undertaker downstairs, "'and that he was no more than an ill-paid, "'if also indispensable, hireling in that profitable business. "'She also knew that as a rule "'he did not wear his top hat "'if he had no more to do than to measure the client's body.' Yes, he replied, brightening. But not for us, for Maples. Maples are sending a gentleman back to South Africa at the end of the week. And when the equator has to be dealt with, they can trust no one in town with a job but myself. Most of the trade, as I dare say you know, is with the United States. And there are quite half a dozen embalmers in London who can deal safely as far as New York and might even guarantee the overland journey to the West Coast. But the equator... That's the real test. Though he was a broken man and knew it, Mr. Moon could not keep the light of professional arrogance from dwelling at this moment in his eyes. What had gone to the breaking of him, and by what slow or swift stages he had declined to his present way of life, Joanna did not know. Unwillingly, well nigh under protest, she had gathered from Trissy's wild talk that once they had had money and professional standing, it looked as if Edwin had been a country doctor with means. That there had come a catastrophe involving disgrace, that after an interval of some dark nature, they had gone to live in America, where Roddy had been born. But she had always shrunk from gratifying her own natural curiosity by means of poor Trissy's incontinence, and had pried no farther than she could help into the undoubted mystery that surrounded the pair. What I wanted to ask you, Trissy is sure to be late home again tonight. I wonder, would you be so very kind? If it wouldn't really be troubling you too much? At last, Mr. Moon was getting to the pith of his request. You want me to keep an eye on the children? exclaimed Joanna, grasping his meaning with considerable relief. Of course I will. It is kind of you to offer, very kind, he breathed, peering at her gratefully. After that Swedish woman's pummeling today, Roddy ought to get to bed early. I'd see to it myself if it weren't for this. And he disparagingly indicated the attaché case. I'll bathe him and give him his supper the minute I get in, promised Joanna with ready energy. Is Ollie with us tonight? She asked as she moved off. I'm afraid she is, yes. Mrs. Garland has a theatre and asked us if we would keep Ollie late, admitted Mr. Moon. It's unfortunate. Do you think you can manage both? It seems too bad to ask it of you. You know I enjoy it, Joanna assured him, smiling. It was not the first time, nor yet the tenth, that similar requests had been made and similar apologies offered. True, it had generally been Trissy who had asked her lodger's help in various ways with the children, with the exception of Edwina's washing and bedding, which was performed at five o'clock each day by a trained nurse, who came for that purpose only. But Mr. Moon must have known of it. Upon entering the house, Joanna stepped upon several letters, which lay dimly white upon the linoleum, just within the front door, where they had fallen from the postman's hand. By the light from the lamp in the court outside, she could barely decipher their directions. Only one was for herself, a bulky one in her mother's unmistakable handwriting. Urgent was marked clearly upon the left-hand top corner of the envelope. But in this there was nothing disturbing, for as Julie had a strong sense of human frailty, which made no exception of the postal service, her correspondents were well accustomed to find either the words urgent or immediate, and frequently the word private as well, upon the outside of her communications. Joanna thought she would read this letter in her bedroom, where she had been going to take off her coat and hat before joining the children, but having already laid her hand on the knob of the door leading to her separate staircase, she involuntarily paused to listen. It was not usually so quiet as this in the house when Ollie was there. Though Ollie and Roddy seldom shared their games, they were decidedly vocal in company and if both voices were not to be heard placidly pursuing independent monologues, Ollie's at least would be lifted loud and utterly absorbed in unending song. But on this evening, not a sound came from upstairs, and Joanna, wondering and suddenly anxious, pushed her unopened letter into her pocket and went straight up through the dim little house to the moon's sitting-room. The moment she had opened the door, the queer silence was explained. The walls of the lamp-lighted room, the mantelpiece, the furniture, even Edwina's empty carriage, were stuck all over with oddly shaped bits of paper. Roddy, on the floor, was laboriously writing with the very wet stump of a pencil upon similar bits of paper. His cheeks were bright scarlet with the efforts he was making and the excitement of what was already achieved. Ollie, plump-legged, round-faced, and short-haired, stood on tiptoe before the glazed bookcase and was busy plastering Roddy's work as high as ever she could reach upon the panes, having first wetted each printed or illustrated scrap with her tongue. Both children looked round at the intruder with delighted but somewhat anxious eyes. Ollie particularly was on tender hooks, and the corners of her smiling lips were ready to drop at a word. "'Why, whatever have you been up to, you two? Joanna exclaimed, and she examined more closely into the children's handiwork. "'Such a lovely game, being dead!' declared Roddy's matter-of-fact voice, but Ollie hovered in uncertainty. She was wavering now on the brink of dismay, and did not take her bright, misgiving eyes off Joanna's face. What they had got hold of, as Joanna now swore, was one of the monumental masons' catalogues from the office downstairs. All the slips of paper were tombstones. There were plain marble crosses and wormy Celtic ones. There were broken pillars, massive sarcophagi, slabs and curbs. There were mourning angels, shattered vases and draped urns. The children had cut them out, growing less and less neat as they had progressed helter-skelter through the catalogue, and had filled each inn with a name they knew. Joanna studied one tombstone after another. Roddy died, she read. Then Edvina died, Ollie died, mother died, father died. All were in Roddy's bold but erratic printing, Ollie being a backward scholar. And besides what she took to be an attempt at her own name, Mrs. Rest Pony died, stuck by the side of the fireplace upon a very imposing piece of scroll-worked sculpture there was pinned up one of the undertaker's printed order forms. Here, Roddy, unable to subdue his calligraphy to the spaces left blank for customers, had answered several questions at once with a single yes or no, or by some secret hieroglyph of his own. Thus, opposite measurement of body, he had put X. Opposite shell-covered, lead-coffin, mahogany-coffin, outside-casket, he had put yes. Opposite, is hand buyer required of us? Is our hearse to go through by rail? Our bearers to go through by rail? Valuations for probate? Monumental masonry? Terms of payment? He had put, no. And wherever he had felt doubtful, or had been presented with a nice large space, he had firmly planted his own name. Roddy, Roddy, Roddy. Joanna shuddered. She told herself it was absurd to feel anything but amusement, yet she could not help that shudder. For the very reason, perhaps, that she could well enter into the children's excitement at having all by themselves discovered so novel a game, she was quite overcome, and for a few moments she dared not turn round from her inspection of the bookcase, lest her unreasoned dread should be communicated to Ollie, who stood just behind her. Perfectly she knew how Ollie was standing there, twisting the corner of her pinafore between her fingers, awaiting the verdict. Roddy she need not trouble about. Roddy was shielded impenetrably by the walls of the citadel in which he dwelt, apart, exempt. Nothing from the outside world could come near him, much less wound him. But Ollie... From the first Joanna had understood in little Ollie something of her own passionate wistfulness of desire towards the world. Ollie wanted the world, and she wanted it perfect, ever so perfect in gaiety and loveliness. So Ollie could not bear one hint of reproach or unhappiness. At last, feeling she was mistress again of her countenance, Joanna turned, and immediately she had to meet the little girl's look of apprehension. I think that's rather a silly game she said with studied lightness. She smiled and held out her hand. Let's tidy the room up, shall we? But Ollie threw back her head and set up a loud and bitter wailing. There is something so ultimate in the despairing crying of certain children that the solid ground of sufficiency seems to crumble beneath the feet of those that hear it. To all laughter and contentment it gives the lie. Upon all theories of childish happiness, even upon the very possibility of any well-founded happiness upon earth, it casts a deep shadow of doubt. It seems to recall all former mirth and to cancel it, or to show at least how closely the tears are at all times lying beneath. It seems to warn the hearer that in future joy no confidence must be placed. Ollie! Darling Ollie! implored Joanna, half-distraught, and she folded the little shaken, sobbing figure to her breast. She had dropped to the floor upon her knees before Ollie, and there she rocked her backwards and forwards, giving and taking all the solace of the blood, but unable to console the spirit of one who, like herself, could hardly endure the inevitable approach of dissolution. The tears fell from her own eyes, and all the sadness of the afternoon, itself a foretaste of death, welled up in her afresh. Even while she gained ground with the child, soothing and cheering her by degrees, her own sadness welled up and overflowed. Come, dear darling pretty Ollie, my pet, my sweetheart, my wee lamb, my hen of gold, she besought, let us make it supper, you shall help. You shall stir the pan for me, and Roddy and you can both have splashy baths tonight, and if you like you may sleep in my bed till mother comes for you. There. And I'll read you Bess Warrigal again, the whole of it, though it's so long. There. And at last, after much coaxing and cuddling, Ollie's sobs subsided. They subsided, and she was once more a happy little girl. She was just a happy little girl again. Saving that every now and then, she gave a curious, reminiscent gulp. Saving that she glanced very often up at Joanna with eyes suspiciously bright. Saving that when she laughed, her laughter sounded perilously gay and boisterous. It took Joanna a full hour and a half to finish with the children. Both in their different ways were greatly excited, and she had cause to rue some of her desperate promises especially that one of the splashy bath before the fire. Ollie in the tub, shaking her head wildly and screwing up her eyes under a wet, fallen fringe of hair, rocked in the water and beat upon it unremittingly with her palms until such moment as Roddy, standing by, should shout the magic words, Peace! Be still! when she became immediately motionless. And when Roddy was in the bath, the process was reversed. But in each case, the periods of storm were prolonged out of all proportion to the periods of calm, and Joanna came near to losing patience. You know what father said, Roddy, she pleaded, that on the night after your massage you must be early in bed, or it won't do you any good. You know it's making your legs bigger and stronger already. Don't you want to be big and strong? As she urged him, she was thinking how like the moons it was that they should pinch themselves, as they undoubtedly were doing, not to speak of Trissy's working herself to threads at the laundry, so that expensive attention should be lavished upon Roddy's delicate limbs, while they allowed him night after night to sit up till all hours, and gave him his supper at any time between five o'clock and eleven. The wonder was that the child should show any benefit from this one-sided treatment, but he certainly did, and now with his clothes off, "'he looked much like any other rather thin little boy. "'I like my massage,' Roddy was remarking meditatively "'in response to Joanna's rally. "'Miss Olson's fingers are just like jewels on my back.' "'But this observation, charming as it was, "'made him no faster in his deliberate washing of his person, "'and Joanna knew by experience "'that he would resent with all his manhood "'any offer of hers to do the soaping or sponging for him.' At last, however, she had got both the small, young, naked bodies dried, roddy, stringy, and hard, yet so helplessly tender. Ollie's petal-soft, yet firm as a Stephanotus bud, and she thought how defenceless, how touchingly exposed the man-child seemed by the side of the finished, compact bud-likeness of the girl-baby. Tell me, Ollie, she asked while she brushed the child's damp, short hair back from her forehead. Fine, dead straight hair it was, cut boyishly indeed, but so female to the touch, so different from Roddy's mane. Tell me, would you rather be a girl or a boy? I'd rather be a girl, laughed Ollie at once, but quite inattentively. She was trying all the while to twitch the jacket of Roddy's pyjama suit away from him before he could struggle into it. Keep still, Ollie, do. Why would you rather be a girl? Persisted Joanna, she was surprised a little by the child's readiness, and therefore doubtful if there had been any meaning behind her answer. This time, Ollie had to think for just a moment. she stood perfectly still under the brush. then, because I like boys best, she gravely replied. But when Joanna could not help smiling, Ollie, in a little panic, was no longer sure what she had said. Or whether it was right or wrong. She looked at Joanna sideways, questioning. Six. When the children were asleep, the bath emptied, all remaining traces of tombstones removed, and a tea tray put ready for the exhausted Trissy's arrival, it was nearly ten o'clock. Only now did Joanna remember her mother's letter. She opened it at once. My beloved child, it ran. Much has happened of late which I have not felt able to mention in my ordinary letters to you. Mother had to meditate and pray before coming to such an important decision, and in her great solitude she had none to help her but our Heavenly Father, who is ever so long-suffering towards the feeblest of his children. Oh, my own darling daughter, may you never fail to seek that source in times of trial, when the evil one lieth in wait, for other help is there none. You will not be surprised when I tell you, dear, that the matter in which I have been seeking guidance is whether my future abode is to be in Glasgow or in London. You remember how we all talked of this at the time of dear Georgie's wedding. When you left, as I have already told you in my letters, Mabel was very kind and attentive. Indeed, I knew not what I should have done without her. But now that she is gone, I feel I can tell you, without seeming ungrateful, that she was far, far from being one of my own precious girls. I do not think she intends it, but Mabel, with her gift of sympathy, has a way of making me say things of my nearest and dearest, which I very much regret afterwards. Not long after Mabel left us, I saw that Linnet, impatient and restless, would really be better living by himself, at least for a time. Eva Gedge, whom I consulted, did not agree with me in this. She thought it my Christian duty to remain with Linnet, But God has shown me otherwise, as he did when I let you go, dear, to London. And I told this to Eva at the same time offering myself for a few months' trial as her co-worker in whatever way she thought best. I offered, if she liked, to take over evening prayers at the training college and to have special Bible readings, dealing especially with prophecies of the second coming for the students, for gifted as Eva is, and intellectually far above my reach, how often, Joanna, has mother to pray against envy of the gifts of others. I could not but see that there was a conventionality, even a seeming coldness about her prayers and exposition of the Holy Word. In all prayerful love, I had thought this to show that her real sphere was organisation, And as Eva has always tried to help me by pointing out any shortcomings of mine, I ventured with none but the most sisterly feelings to draw her attention to what I am sure is the truth. But you will hardly believe me when I tell you how completely her manner has changed towards me from that very moment. Christ's kingdom is indeed still far off, so long as his chosen ones have so little of his spirit.' It was a most painful, most bitter experience, and has made any further idea of my living under her roof, even if she were willing, quite impossible. This happened about three weeks ago, but wishing to say nothing unjust, I did not tell you of it at once. Now, after much wavering, I think I see my way clear. As soon as suitable rooms can be got for Linnet, I must come to London.' and I must do what you have all so often begged, I now see rightly. I must hand over all the housekeeping to you, if you still feel able for it, and confine myself to certain duties which will lighten your responsibilities. Your frequent affectionate letters and Georgie's have been a great strength to me in some dark hours, and I feel a growing longing to be with you in that great and wonderful city where so much is being done, do I not read of it continually in my weekly magazines, to hasten the coming of his kingdom, which is all my prayer and desire. It will, of course, take some time to get Linnet comfortably settled here, but we shall go as we are led, one step at a time. Meanwhile, it might be as well, don't you think, to be on the lookout for a suitable, quite small house in the neighbourhood of Hampstead Heath. I should wish, of course, not to be far from Georgie. If possible, I'd rather not have a flat, never having fancied one, though I'm told the London people prefer them, and I know they are very different from our Glasgow closes. You need not be told how happy Mother is with a bit of garden to tend, but this may be too much to hope for. Joanna read this long letter, and there was much more of it, through to the end with a loving but heavy heart. Though it told her little that was unexpected, she knew now how surely she had come to count upon her mother's protracted unwillingness to leave Glasgow. The loss of this surety was a blow at her freedom and her new-found happiness. But she felt for Julie, and she was not free from self-reproach. She tried hard to persuade herself that, given entirely new conditions, she and her mother might be able to find a new and happier existence under the same roof. Anyhow, there was but one thing to be done, cost what it might later. She wrote a welcoming, affectionate letter home, without delay. End of section 25